What does it mean, Messiah Matters? It means apart from him, we can do nothing. It means he is the way, the truth, and the life. Yeshua is the only way of salvation. He is everything. We have to have the Tanakh to know the Messiah. But we have to have the Messiah to know the Tanakh. Without Messiah, we have nothing. Basically, it's all about the Messiah. It's Thursday, September 6, 2018. This is Messiah Matters number 233, uh, two, rather. My voice is here, but my mind is already on vacation. My name is Caleb Hag, and with me, the man that is considering a new career as a roofer, Rob Van Hoff. What up, <laughs> Rob? No. <laughs> Just, so Caleb's referring to a leak in our roof, and so I've been up on the up and down on our roof trying to uh, locate. This happened a couple of years ago where I had to tear out a bunch of uh, shingles and fi- try try to find replacement shingles that matched and and then re and Bruka Shem were able to fix that other leak. So this is a new thing. I haven't located exactly, but yesterday I was able to start filling some gaps that I think might potentially be the the problem. But yeah, whoa! To those who do roofing professionally, good on you. Good on you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I my dad took me roofing one time. Uh, when I was maybe 11 years old, there was a church building that we, or church offices, that we tried to roof. Now, I didn't know what in the world I was doing. I was swinging a hammer. I was probably making more holes in the roof than, than I was uh, patching up. But uh, I remember it being extremely hot and it not being cool. That's my, that's my memory of, of roofing. And so I plan to never try to do it again. We got five people in the chat room right now, which is uh, incredible since this is the official secret show. It's like a speakeasy, but only for Messiah Matters. You know, like nobody knows where it is or when it's going to happen. It just does. It's like the rapture. Right. I can tell already that that Rob is in the chat room because he is not paying attention to the show already. That's okay, though. Um, I don't know what we're interrupting on Torah Resource Radio, but we just inter- interrupted it. So if you were in the middle of like kids' Torah time or something. Yeah, exactly. So. I feel bad, but I figured people would want to hear it. It's the secret And Gary show. Springer's at a conference in like Atlanta, so... And he's our, he's, he's our radio programmer, so who knows? <laughs> he's, hi, Gary, if you're listening. Yeah, if he's listening, he's, he's probably freaking he's three, out because... We, it's eleven twenty. We yeah. probably came in right in the middle, of like my dad's lecture on Galatians. Somebody was waiting for the, you know, for that. You're like, <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, so before we get started, we should just say that uh, Messiah Matters is brought to you by Torah Resource. As always, find all sorts of great stuff at Torah Resource, free and to pay for if you would like to. Also, this show, number 233, is brought to you by our producers, our associate, and our executive producers. Uh, thank you so much to them. And uh, we're coming up to the end of this, cor- uh, this 
quarter. So if you would like to uh, be an accredited associate or executive producer, then you can do so by going to TorahResource.com and finding the Messiah Matters page. And uh, there's information there. And uh, you basically pay for a producership for an, a whole quarter. So it's really a good deal. And you get a cup. We're, we're, ma we're making new graphics and everything for this. So um, it's going to be a good one. The winter quarter is going to be good. That rolls over on October 2nd, I believe. Um, so, yeah, think about it. And, of course, our monthly supporters. We could not do this without you. We love you guys so much. Imagine a world without the Messiah Matters. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my, my dad said to me uh, we were going we to send out some, uh, some postcards to people at camp, you know, like supporters, when we were at camp, these little postcards from Torah Resource Institute family camp, uh, you know, kind of a wish you were here or whatever. And my dad was like, do you really wish that they were here? Like he was like, D -d -d doesn't that sound a little bit, you know, are you, is, is that a little bit gimmicky? And I was like, no, I really wish that every single one of these supporters was here at family camp, so I could meet them face-to-face -face right. and shake their hands. Well, that takes me back, Caleb. That reminds me of our what we're cooking, what we're brewing is... Uh, the mmm. The mmm. Yeah. Where we come to you. Right. I want to meet these and people. And so we, again, keep this in prayer that, uh, that Adonai would give us wisdom and clarity and uh, courage and provision, etc., I forgot to tell you this, uh, uh, Rob, but uh, while at camp, I was given uh, pretty good uh, guidance that uh, Texas is the first place we need to come. Mm. And the reason why is because we already have the place to do it. Christy in the chat room, who's I, she's not in the chat room right now, but Christy uh, offered her, her, her home, which sounds to be a large, a very large home. Yeah, she's in Arizona, though, right? Or oh, she, she in, I thought she was in Texas. Maybe you're right. Christie's okay. in Arizona. That shows uh, you how much I pay attention. Phoenix area, but Texas. I think we we've we've got friends in Texas also. We got friends in Texas and Arizona. Done and done. Anyway, yeah. Uh, keep us in prayer for that. Okay. Uh, be a part of the conversation. Email us at oh wrong one. Just joking. Hang on. There you so go. So is call our this caller comment line two five three four six five thirty two zero five. Or send us an email, cheggettorresource.com. Go ahead, Rob. Is this going to, so what we're, our show that we're doing right now, right? is this going to play next next Wednesday? Well, on YouTube, it's playing right now. So people will be able to uh, get it on demand anytime they want on YouTube. That's the nice thing about YouTube. Um, this show will play on the radio um, next Wednesday. So, all right. Yes. So let's, let's, cook. I think today we're just, Diving in, and we don't know how many shows we might do on this, on yeah. this topic, right? Jerusalem Council. Before we get to that, I, I have a couple other things, though. Um, first of all, for our supporters, I should let everyone know that I uh, recorded a quick little teaching. It was very choppy. You know, I'm, I'm not very good at reading. Um, I did a little teaching on the festivals, um, the fall festivals. It's up in the Messiah Matters More uh, section, and I, I made that... The new one is always going to be the blue button. Anything that's new is going to be blue. So if you go okay. to the Messiah Matters More page and you find a blue button, it means it's new. It's the newest thing that we have up there. Um, so that's there. <clears throat> and then also, Rob kept saying to me, have you gotten the new JBL, Journal of Biblical Literature, which is put out by the Society of Biblical Literature. 
Um, and we get a couple of different journals here in the office. Um, for those who don't know, Rob's actually over in Spokane, which is about five hours away from me. Um, and so uh, here in the office, we do get the JBL, and we also get uh, the ETS, Jets, and, and uh, some other things. So finally, uh, I tracked this down yesterday, found, found it in the office, and um, there's this uh, article. It's, uh, what, 20 pages, 19 pages, by a gentleman named Jan Heilman. And Jan Heilman wrote uh, a article called A Meal in the Background of John 6, 51 through 58. Now, for those who listen to this show on a regular basis, you know that I am have been for the past year and a half, almost two years now, writing a thesis on uh, the Eucharist. And to be honest with you, the more I study, the more I realize that this is going to take years. It's not, this isn't a one and done. Since I'm not in school, like full time, writing a thesis is not something that I can do in like six months to a year like a normal student. So this is, I mean, the research alone is, is very large. There's nothing about you normal. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's true. Um, so I started reading this article and basically this guy took all of the arguments that I'm trying to, that I've tried to make in 75 pages that I've written already. And he has succinctly wrapped them up into about 20 five pages. Pages. Or, yeah. <laughs> the first five pages. And I'm reading the first five pages and I'm saying, this is exactly what I've been trying to say, but he says it better and he says it more succinctly. Like, this is perfect, right? So what I do is I uh, look for, well, he, he makes a reference to a book where he says, well, this has all been covered in this book. Well, it's by him. And come to find out, it's his, uh, it's his PhD dissertation, I believe. Cool. And uh, so I look that up. I find it. And I'm very excited to read it. Unfortunately, I don't read German, and the whole thing is in German. So uh, that was disappointing. So then I go to... Uh, now, now, what I'm doing here is I'm setting this up because this is really... There's a point to all this. Um, I go to the SBL site, Society of Biblical Literature, and I just happen to see if, if uh, Jan, who is studying in Germany right now, is going to be at the Society of Biblical Literature. And guess what? He is. And he's going to be at in the same. Uh, he's he's giving he's giving a lecture in the same uh, uh, session as Andrew McGowan. Andrew McGowan is a leading scholar in, in Greco-Roman meals as well, which is kind of the area that I'm in. So what do I do? Since his email address is right here in the uh, uh, JBL, I get online and I shoot Jan a uh, an email and say, "Hey, love to buy you dinner." At the upcoming Denver SBL. And this morning I got in. Who do I have an email from? Good old Jan gave me his phone number. We're connected on WhatsApp. He's like, I like steak. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> like like tilling. But yeah, right. But this here's the thing is that this is exactly why SBL and and the ETS and SBL annual meetings is so important. Right. Well, you gotta find you find the value, you target the value, and you you connect with those like-minded people here's why because there's going to be thousands and thousands of people there that have completely different worldviews right that that have completely different value systems and so it's it's you have to be selective right and and what caleb what i like about what you're doing and i've tried to do the same thing is to be as deliberate as possible right right that there's value to be found in connection with people who are working and concentrating on similar problems, sim similar interpretive issues, etc., similar texts, and 
part of good stewardship, I think, as our part uh, as what we do at Tor Resource is to to be clear and targeted and and try to build those connections and and encourage people. It's because he's going to be encouraged by you just as much as you're uh, benefiting. So, so uh, this was a scholarship. This was a turning point for me two years ago. It was almost almost two years ago. We were in Texas, and when. Um, you know, Chris, Dr. Chris Tilling, who's been a, a real blessing in my life, just just his writing alone, uh, n- not to mention his his sense of humor. <laughs> his, oh man, he's so funny. Uh, but you know, his he's encouraging as well. Uh, even though I'm not one of his students, you know, he's he's like, can uh, you talk like that? <laughs> like, you're like, can you say those words if you're a scholar? <laughs> like, rub elbows with N.T. Wright, and like, right? But you know, he. Uh, we were at the Texas SBL in San Antonio. It was like the third day. It was like the last day or something. November and, 2016. Yeah. Coming out two him, years ago. I asked him, I said, uh, so, uh, you know, seen any good uh, lectures? And his his response just blew me away. He said, no, I haven't seen any lectures yet. I haven't gone to any any papers. <laughs> it's like day three. It's day three. three. Like, what are you doing? And he was, you know, he, he said, well, you know, I've been getting meals with people sitting and chatting i've been in the book display talking with people you know and all of a sudden i realized that that it is very important to see papers and and be in in uh, lectures but for someone like myself with such a very specific focus of of what i'm writing right now it's just as important to go and make sure that you're connecting with the people who are writing the books in other words it works we have to make it work for us our team our tour resource team we go to sbl and es uh 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 ETS, ETS. We are there to learn from right. papers. We're also there to make it to to come away personally uh, sharpened. Right. Uh, for and so that means we have to make use of of, of the networking opportunities, the the uh, the book, you know, the what they call the conference. You know what this does though. You know what this article does. It shows me that I am totally inadequate in, in my research and my writing. This guy sums up in five pages what I've tried to sum up in the past thirty pages of my thesis. No, but see, the, and he's is... done it better than me. Well, that's good. You benefit <laughs> from that, though. Oh, I know. I'm uh, absolutely. Now but, imagine this: you'd already publish, you already publish your book, and then you find this. And you're like, oh man, oh, yeah, exactly. he wrote this already. Oh, see, this is good. This is you expanding your bibliography, clarifying your argument, because the Lord is guiding you, and he's gonna right. he's gonna sharpen you. So by the time you're you have it communicated you're you're you've got a healthy you're not just here's the thing about bibliography and citation we don't it, the goal is not to just to have an article that just has tons of footnotes just so we can look right impressive or that we can right. look like we've read a lot no the, we only want to have footnotes that that are valuable to us to right. support or and sometimes to say you know what there's an alternative view on this see you know John Smith, dot, 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 right. for an alternative reading, you know. But for, in large, you know, our, our footnotes are because we recognize the limits of our, of our own individual uh, capacities and our dependence on the larger conversation of, of scholarship. Right. And it's part of a conversation. And so, uh, you know. So... It, Anyway, let me let me uh, go a little further for our now. Now let's start moving into um, acts and um, there's a small group that I'm a part of, and uh, some of the people said, "Hey, let's study the book of Acts." And I thought, "Wow, I've never actually gone through Acts. It could be a real challenge 
Yeah, for multiple reasons. Number one, my dad has never written a commentary on on Acts, and and uh, usually when I'm studying and whatnot, his commentaries are, you know, some of the things that I always go to first. What does my dad say on this? So you know, then I kind of glean from him. I can see his bibliography, and I can go and kind of jump from there, right? So it would be very difficult not to be able to, for me personally, it would be a it would be a test of of what I of my research. Uh, abilities to start in you know in a different place because my dad hasn't written on on Acts. He has written on Acts, but it was back in the eighties when he was in the Christian Church. Um, and so I thought, yeah, okay, well, well, that would be that would be interesting and good. So I started doing my own study, and <clears throat> one of the first places that I started was in the ESV Study Bible, as I usually do. And and the reason why is because the ESV Study Bible. Um, if you have one, they're really helpful. They uh, have usually, I don't know, maybe eight pages before the book begins that talks about author, time, um, setting, uh, you know, where the theme of the book, all these kind of things. And so I thought, well, okay, the, you know, a lot of the time I'll, I'll start there and just kind of, and it's usually a real brief overview. And one of the things that uh, it said was that the Western text has 10% more. Now, I was blown away by that. Now, I, I'll talk about what that means here in a few few minutes. But uh, this is not the first time that I've encountered the Western text because the Western text, which uh, the only Greek Western text that we have, and let, I'm going to explain what I mean by Western text, is uh, a codex uh, that is uh, signified by D, um, and uh, it's called Codex Bizet. Um, it, it's some, it was discovered by a man named Beza and, uh, Beza was a, a theologian in the, during the Reformation, a good theologian by that, by the way, he was a very good theologian. And, uh, he rediscovered, uh, Beza and, uh, and that's why it's called Codex Bizet. Anyway, so, um, I've, I've already kind of dealt a little bit with, with this codex and uh, some of the inter interesting things that pop up in this. And the reason why is because in, um, in Luke 22, 19, uh, the Western text actually leaves out the part where it says, uh, this is the blood of the covenant, do this in remembrance of me. And that's what I'm writing my, uh, a lot of my, my thesis on, this specific part. So I've had to actually interact with this. So... Um, a little bit about text traditions, and then I will kind of punt this off to you. Um, basically, we today have predominantly three main text traditions. We have the Augustinian tradition. The Augustinian tradition would be codexes like uh, Codex Sinaiticus, Codex uh, Vaticanus, Codex Ephraimi. Uh, these are the codices that Bibles like the ESV, the NASB, um, are based on. And so this is the text tradition that they're using to translate the Bible that you have in your hands. Um, predominantly, they're using what is called the Augustinian tradition. Some people also say, say things like uh, the Eastern tradition, but it, Augustinian tradition is, is what we would deem this. Then you have the, uh, um, oh man, what's it called? <laughs> What's the second main tradition? KJV is is uh, is based on the second tradition, uh, majority text. Thank you. The M okay, yeah, MT. So majority the the text majority text, the majority text is uh, usually later, and uh, later uh, it's a later text tradition. So we're talking about tenth century, uh, CE is when the uh, majority text 
starts to, th this is where all these uh, these texts are from. And uh, this text tradition is where we get the KJV and, and the new King, King James Version is where uh, is they use the majority text. And then you have the Western text. And the Western text is very, um, not nearly as well known. And the reason why is because nobody really uses it, which is surprising. The interesting thing about the Western text is that uh, we know that it's early. We know it's a very early tradition. And one of the reasons that we know that is because church fathers, early church fathers, uh, 3rd century and beginning of 3rd century, quote this, you know, they, they use quotes out of what would be considered the Western text. Now, we don't actually have a Western text until the late 4th to early 5th century, and that's Codex D. That's Codex Bizet. Codex Bizet is the only uh, Western codex that has Greek. So uh, this manuscript has uh, Latin on one side and Greek on the other side. And so it's uh, kind of side by side, Greek and Latin. Uh, David Parker, who's the, I would consider him uh, the head the leading scholar in uh, in the West in Codex Bizet today, he's I think uh, very convincingly proven that uh, the the main scribe was of a Latin tradition, so he spoke Latin predominantly. Meaning, right, 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 and, and uh, wrote and wrote right, right. So it's like someone who is trained to write and read Latin and copy Latin texts, and then they learn Greek secondarily. And Caleb, so is it true that they're able to tell by the way he wrote Greek, like the way he, the letter formation, that it it wasn't native Greek? Right. So uh, it'd be like me, someone reading me writing Hebrew. They're so, like, yeah, this this guy, this right? Guy, this guy didn't grow up writing Hebrew, right? And so actually, David Parker takes twenty two pages in the beginning of his book, titled Codex Bizet. It's a very expensive book. It costs about one hundred and fifty dollars. Um, I interlibrary loaned it, and uh, it is. It is heady reading. Um, I'm about 65 pages in, and he's talked about every single hand that's in the in the uh, every corrector, um, and I think that there's there's a lot of them. So he talks about every single corrector. He talks about uh, the space between lines. He talks about the space between letters. He talks about um, just all sorts of stuff. The fact that uh, the first three lines of the main tech of the of the beginning of a book are in blue ink, which is also uh, predominantly of a Latin tradition. He talks about the uh, the angle of which the quill was cut um, will tell them kind of where where this person was trained. All sorts of stuff. It's really, it's very interesting for someone like me who... They call who, that paleography. Right, the and the paleography to me is very interesting. I think for any person who's not really into paleography, it, I can see how this would just be dead boring. You know, he's saying things like, on folio 152, we have the sigma that is uh, 16th millimeters shorter than, you know, this kind of, this kind of thing. So... Um, and hey, by the way, I found it at Cambridge University Press, paperback for fifty-eight bucks. So, nice. if you want to get now, again, that's not a hard uh, hardback, uh, so not maybe as built or not nice of physically a product, but it's a little more. It's still sixty bucks is still steep, but if for people who are into it. So the Western text. One of the one of the things that one of the things that uh, the Western text is kind of known for is either deletions in certain places or additions in other places. So as I said earlier, the Book of Acts in Codex Bizet or 
the Codex Mosaic is not the only codex that we have of the Western text. There's multiple texts that we have, but they're not, but Codex Mosaic is the only one that has Greek. It's a Latin tradition. In other words, the Western te text comes out of a Latin tradition. So we have Latin texts. We have uh, some other, some other. I think we have Syriac. I could be wrong. Anyway, um, the the point is is that in Codex Mosaic, there's ten percent more of the Book of Acts. Now, a lot of this is like, and then he stood up, you know, like, and he prayed would be that, you know, you know, and he stood up and prayed, you know, like, so, and he stood up would be like an addition. These are a lot of the kind of additions. And you can find online, you can find the Western text of Acts, and they put in bold everywhere that, uh, that the Western text adds something which is really interesting. Now, there's deletions in different places, like I've referenced uh, uh, Luke 22:19b. Anyway, um, so why do I bring all this up? One of the reasons I bring this up is because I found this very interesting. Other people may not, but I found this very interesting. Um, in Acts 15, 19 through 21, and this is really the portion that we're going to be focusing on for the next, I don't know how long, uh, what, the next, at least this episode, I would say at least another episode, um, this is the Jerusalem Council, right? And I think many people are very familiar with this uh, with this text, basically of the Jerusalem Council. And um, just to give a little bit of background, uh, the council saying, "What do we do with the Gentiles? Do the Gentiles have to be circumcised uh, to to gain salvation?" Now, this might sound like a a, a really uh, obvious answer, right? Because uh, Paul talks in Romans constantly about salvation by faith alone yada, 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 all these kind of things. And so why would they think that somebody needed to be circumcised? Right. Well, this is actually, and I think Rob and I have talked enough about this that we can pretty much refer to other shows, but basically this term circumcision or circumcised, we believe this is a shorthand for saying a conversion process. Do you have to convert to whatever, and I know convert is a would be a later maybe concept, um, but, you know, there's rituals that you have to go to go through to become one of us, and do you have to do that? Do you have to go through these rituals to become part of Israel, right. I think would be a better way to say it. Yeah, and we've talked about this yeah, quite ahead. a bit, and one one thing that I've seen, and I see it in the, the Instone Brewer article um, that we have in the show notes which I encourage everybody to read. It's, it's it's about 10 years old. I think it's, was it 09 or 07? Oh, yes. Are you going to name Stone Brewer at this point? Well, I just wanted to point out one thing, is that he, among other places, they'll conflate Acts 15, verse 1, with Acts 15, verse 5. Which, what They both touch on the verb to, to be circumcised, but... The, uh, they're often conflated as being the same voice, and they're actually two different voices. So the voice of Acts 15.1 is a group uh, of Jews up in Antioch. The voice we read at Acts 15.5 are Pharisee believers in Jerusalem, and they're, they're, the language is very different, and so they can't be uh, conflated so easily. So um, I don't know if we, since we're talking about Acts 15, do we want to go back to verse 1 and verse 5 and just point out some of the differences here? Sure, absolutely. Um, Let me pull it up here. I, I okay, got my, yeah, let's I got do my that. ESV, and I'm going to pull up a uh, parallel text in Greek, just in case. Um, go for it, Rob. So the, the Acts 15.1, so some men came down from Judea, that is to Antioch, 
So it means they actually went way up north. This is this is not Antioch in in Turkey, right? Modern day Turkey. This is Antioch in Syria. So almost up to where Tarsus is, where Paul of Tarsus was born. Some men came down from Judea, began teaching the brethren. Now, the the translations are usually going to say something like, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, um, I take this, the the verb construction here, to be, un, uh, now it's an aorist infinitive, but un, unless you're already circumcised, unless you were, in other words. So and we should have put your paper in on, Rob's written on this before, and it's, yeah. it's it, you can find it on the Torah resource site under articles, it's free. Keep going. I'm sorry, it's, it's not infinitive, it's a subjunctive, but it's, uh, now that I pulled up the Greek, it it's still non-indicative mood. That's the important thing. It's a non-indicative mood. I a lot of people don't know what that means, and that's and, not necessarily a bad thing. The point is this. I read this, that the message that brothers were hearing, so that, uh, brothers were being taught. Brothers means legitimate believers in Yeshua, okay. right? We're being taught. Unless you were circumcised, I take it as past tense, unless you were circumcised according to the of Moses, you are not able to be saved. In other words, they were and i i take this with what i call the eighth dayers and we know yeah. that there are certain groups such as the samaritan Torah. Today, we got, today we got flat earthers back then they had eight dayers yeah exactly <laughs> uh the book of jubilees and perhaps a couple other sources that uh that there was a, a at least one strain of jewish sectarianism that were hardline unless a a, a a male, a Jewish male, was circumcised on the eighth, uh, the eighth day. They were There's cut no off hope. from the covenant. Yeah, they had no, no salvation. So, in other words, and they couldn't get back in either. So, a father, if a father failed to circumcise their son on the eighth day, that would that would mean that that child was cut off and had no no recourse. Because there's no, this is also a no conversion. There's there's a strict division between Jews and Gentiles here. So I wonder what they would have done with the fact that Moses' son, one of Moses' sons is not circumcised when he goes back to to Egypt, and his wife is the one who has to... Well, not only that, what about all the Israelites that come in under Joshua that were right. born in the wilderness? There's, there's men at least almost 40 years old, presumably, that had not been circumcised. And so, because they went through the whole wilderness. So the point is this, is that there seems to have been a hard line, or it's... We can understand it with the Samaritans because the Samaritans rejected the subsequent history, um, and so they would challenge some of that. We don't know they didn't preserve the Joshua or the Samuel traditions, you know. Um, but the idea is that we we do know at least from the Book of Jubilees that this was an issue and possibly accepted even at Qumran. We don't know for sure, but we know the Jubilees is highly quoted at Qumran as right. a, as legal uh, kind of official scripture. So in any event, the, the chapter 15, verse 1 of Acts, um, why does this cause, call it, cause a debate? It causes a debate and, and no small dissension, it says, is because you had believers who thought, who, who trusted they were saved and, and you know, uh, Luke here calls them brothers, right? So they 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 are legitimate believers in Yeshua. They're being told that they cannot be saved, 
And of course, the two ways of reading this is the traditional way is unless they do an additional work, so they're not saved unless they do an additional work or what the, my reading is there, there is no option for salvation You're for out. them. Right. They've been lied to because you weren't, uh, unless you were circumcised according to custom of Moses, which is code word, I'm arguing, eighth day circumcision. Now, that we need to contrast that. It says they, there's such a dispute, they go to Jerusalem to talk to the elders. Meanwhile, they're preaching uh, 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 repentance among the Gentiles, right? And more and more Gentiles are believing. Um, but they come and ha have a meet with the apostles and elders, um, uh, in Jerusalem, and it so says it, for, some for, believers. For, the, for, for those listening, he's in verse four at this point. Yeah, and so by the time we get to verse five, we've changed. Even though it's only five verses, we've changed serious. A lot of time has gone by. Do you know how long it takes to go, even if you're on a horseback, to go from Antioch up in Syria all the way to Jerusalem? We're talking a serious. This is a journey. Geographical shift has happened between verse one and verse five. Right. Although in the narrative, it's just Luke's interest is just to tell us there was a dissension in Antioch, and so they went to Jerusalem. Right. So because the verses are so close to each other, it's easy to think it's the same idea. But when you think of the time involved, and then it tells us, he says, some believers who were part of the Pharisees rose up. This is in Jerusalem. So now right. you have a different voice, a different group of people, and what they suggest is something different. They just say. They don't say you're unable to be saved. They're not telling people they're unable to be saved. They're just saying for people who are believers, it is necessary for us to circumcise, for us to be circumcising them and to command them to keep uh, the Torah of Moses. This is a separate issue because the issue in verse 1 threatened to undermine whether someone was really saved or not right. as it's Right. That's not at all what the believers of the Pharisees are saying. The believers of the Pharisees are accepting their, these brothers as believers. They're not saying they're not saved. What right. they're saying is there is additionally, we need to be circumcising them. Which, what does that mean? That means we need to set up little Mohel shops all around and make sure people run through our, our shops. If you're not right? part, and we see this today, almost like almost the exact same thing happening today, right? The Catholic Church, and we see it in Christianity too. The Catholic Church will tell you if you're not baptized in our church, in the into the Catholic tradition, you're you're not you're not in. You're not part of the the Catholic the universal church, and you have the same thing with with other denominations, right? If you're not part of you know if you're not baptized into the Lutheran tradition or you know into if you're not part of this Messianic congregation, you know then it's almost like you're not in. You know what I mean? Or uh, let's reverse it for, you know, w growing up. I remember this distinctly growing up. We had a family that lived across uh, across the street and down a couple of houses and they were Catholics. And I remember and I'm not saying that this is right or wrong, but we constantly prayed that they would come to faith in, in Yeshua because they were Catholics. So, I mean, the thought is, is if you're not part of us. In some way, shape, you know, if you're not some way part of us. Now, I'm making very, very broad strokes here, obviously. But if you're not part of us, you're not in. Well, the same thing seems to be going on here in verse 5. If you're not part of our sect of Judaism, if you're not part of the Pharisees, no. Like, you need to become circumcised and be part of us. Is that, I mean, am I catching your what you're laying down? Well, it's it. 
let's look back at the language. It says definitely these are believers from among the Pharisees. So we know at this point there were at least two Pharisees, because it's plural, Pharisaeon. Right. <laughs> we know that there are uh, groups, whether small or large at this point, uh, Pharisees who are believers in Yeshua and are have access to the Jerusalem leadership. Right. Right. Like James and Peter and et cetera. And we know Paul eventually is, uh, well, by this point, Paul is obviously uh, one of the Pharisees. But uh, Paul would not be, he would be a Pharisee who's not going to agree with this group of Pharisees. So this is among, uh, some among the Pharisees, not all the Jewish Pharisees who believed in Yeshua are necessarily taking the stance. Um, so it's some of them. And they're saying it's necessary for us to to be circumcising them and to order them to to keep the the, the law of Moses. So what what that looks like it would seem to be skewed to a Pharisaic uh, interpretation, which isn't necessarily wrong in terms of you know the calendar and feast days, etc. Counting the Omer, but obviously. As, as we continue in Acts, we see that the Ruach HaKodesh is not with these Pharisees on this right. issue. Yes. And so what what Luke gives us is, a, is in Acts 15, which is really kind of the middle of his whole epistle here, because we have, it's the middle of, or the, his middle of volume two here of Acts. Right. We have the Apostolic Council, and then it's reiterated, some of it uh, is reiterated another halfway again towards the end in Acts 21. But so we're 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 taking verse one. There are people not believers, right? We weren't. He doesn't tell us that the the people described in verse one were believers. believers, right? He just says some certain ones came down. He just calls them certain ones, and there's a distancing there. Why does he call these certain ones came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, whereas in verse five he's saying believers among the Pharisees said. So these are not the same group of people and right. they have different motivations. The just to reiterate, 15 verse 1 is talking about people who I I say the reason Luke gives the distance cuz they're not believers. These are people who are going around and tell, they're just they're bringing division cuz they're telling Gentiles who believed in Yeshua that no, you know, I know you've believed that you were saved. You have no salvation unless yeah. Eh, and that ant could be un unless you would jump through these hoops or unless unless you were actually circumcised on the eighth day. And that's that's my reading, but uh, I acknowledge the other reading there. And then verse 5, though we are told specifically by Luke, the same author, these were believers from among the Pharisees in Jerusalem. Completely different groups of people, completely different message. There's no right. message in 15.5 that even this small group of Pharisees suggesting this, that the salvation of these brothers was at risk right. or was somehow illegitimately uh, sold to them. Uh, that what they're doing is saying, we must do this to them. We must circumcise them. Well, what would that look like? That would look like if let's say I'm in, I'm one of these Pharisees that believed and I'm, I'm at one of these advocates and Caleb, let's say you're one of these Gentiles who just came to faith. I would come to you and say, I have to circumcise you. Right. It's I. It's something I have to do this to you. It is necessary that I do this to you. And you make well. 
you know, I, in other words, I'm forcing a thing on you. Right. And that is why I think the Ruach HaKodesh, uh, among other things, that according to God's wisdom, says no. The, the terms of the Brit Hadashah, the terms of the covenant of, the, of new creation is that God writes the Torah on the heart. Right. And it's the, it's the desire of the individual. Now, in other words, what I mean to say is we are not to read verse 5 here and then its consequent um, rejection of, of this minority Pharisaic opinion by the Ruach HaKodesh and the council to mean that a Gentile is never to be circumcised. I, right. that is, and that's the reading that has come down, it seems, and, and it's become a majority view in Christian history. And, more, and it's, it's almost like a rut in the highway. Your car kind of almost automatically goes there because we've been taught to think that way. Um, and that we know that's not true. We know that's not true at the very least because in the very next chapter, Paul circumcises Timothy. Right. Right. Okay. So the idea is it's not compelled. The right. issue is clarified in, in, in Galatians, which I believe was already written before. And that's another issue. But I, chronologically, um, Paul had already been to Antioch and had written back to the Galatians. So so what Paul talks about in Galatians 2, in my view, is not to be equated with what's ta- what's going on here, even though some scholars equate Galatians 2 issue between Kepha and Paul with uh, Acts 15. I, I, I don't accept that view, but that's a side issue. Um, the point is compulsion. So, okay, so let's... It is not to be compelled. Why? Because once a person com- forces somebody else to do something, it's no longer a work out of faith. It's not faith working through love. What it is, it's someone imposing hierarchy and forcing another person. And that is against the what the terms of the Brit Hadashah. Right, right. Okay, um, let's, I, I agree with you. And so compulsion here is, is I think, you, you're on the right, you're on the right place, uh, on the right track here. Okay, so uh, there's a lot of different, we were, we got about 15 minutes left. There's a lot of different places that we could go with this. Um, now we could move straight into um, Acts 15, 19. Um, the one thing that I wanted to uh, highlight, and this is maybe a little bit of a rabbit trail. I was talking about the Western text and, and Codex Bizet and, and what the Western text says, as opposed to what, um, say, the Augustinian text or even the um, majority text says. So... Um, this is and this is an older translation, so you can hear some of the uh, <laughs> some of the old English that goes along with it. But um, this is how the Western text, and I, I think that there's a break in the in in the Codex because they put they put in yeah, something. It, it's but not complete for some reason. It's not complete. They put they put in and from what is strangled. Anyway, okay, I'll read this, and this is. This is, uh, this is kind of interesting. So this is what um, the, the Western text says. Wherefore, my judgment is that we trouble not them, I'm talking of uh, which from among the Gentiles, turn to God, but that we enjoin on them to abstain from the pollutions of idols and from fornication, and then they add, because I think the codex is broken, and from what is strangled, and then this is in the text, and from blood. And now this is where the Western text deviates from the other two text traditions. Um, the Western text puts in, and that whatsoever they would not 
they would not should be done to them, ye do not to others. So it's a reversal of the golden rule. And what this, what is really interesting about this is that this text tradition, the Western text tradition, is prior to the writing of the Mishnah. And the Mishnah, is it the Mishnah that tells us that Hillel is the one who originally reversed it, reversed the golden rule? Or is it later rabbinics? You mean uh, when you say reversed? Yeah, don't do unto others as you wouldn't have oh, them oh, do oh, unto oh, you. Yeah. Well, in, in the Bavli, he says that which is evil to you or that which is hateful to you do not do. So another. and so we're talking Bobbly. We're talking late, oh, sep- yeah, yeah, sixth, yeah, se- seventh century, and uh, what we have here is second century Christian literature that has already reversed the golden rule. Now I'm not saying that this. I, I'm not advocating that this is necessarily the original uh, text or not. All I'm highlighting is two things. First of all, that the Western text adds a fifth commandment to the Gentiles: don't do to others as you wouldn't want them to do to you. So that's put into the Jerusalem Council in the Western text, which is very interesting to me. The second thing I'm highlighting is we have a Christian witness way before, 500 years before the Babylonian Talmud even could be purported to be written, that has this on the mouth of a Christian, quote unquote, I'm putting quote marks between Christian, let's say believer, and whereas Judaism uh, then tries to reverse it and say, no, 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 uh, Jesus didn't say it first. Hillel said it reversed. He 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 right. makes it negative. Well, that's not the text tradition that we have. The text tradition is that this was on the, the mouths of believers reversed before it was on the mouth of Hillel. I thought that was super interesting. And of course, the end of this passage is for Moses from generation of old hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath, which is also something that people tend to uh, neglect. So that's my that's my main uh, that's my main interest in Codex Bizet here for this week. Um, so should we talk for? I mean, I don't think it's going to take us very long at all to talk about Instone Brewer's article, um, and I think we have enough time to to fit it in here at the end. Should we talk a little bit about Instone Brewer's article? Uh, sure, and we could maybe we could maybe even talk about it in another show too. You can always tell when uh, when uh, Rob's in the chat room because his answers are delayed. Okay, um, <laughs> so Doctor Instone Brewer is a, uh, a wonderful person. I've met him personally. I've I've interviewed him. He runs a uh, significant amount of different projects right now. I believe he's uh, uh, still running the Trent Project. He's uh, he's he's got his hands in a lot of different things. He's written extensively on multiple different things, including divorce in the ancient Near East, um, which is kind of one of his uh, one of his go-to books. Uh, a lot of people reference that book. Um, uh, and I'm not I'm not uh, promoting. You know, I disagree with uh, Dr. Inson Brewer on um, several different things. We've talked about some of the things that we've disagreed with him on. However, uh, he's he's a, a fantastic person and and he's a good scholar in uh, in terms of he's one of the leading. And wasn't he the head librarian for Cambridge, or was it Oxford? Anyway, the guy's credentials are through the roof. I mean, he's and he's just a he's just a very very lovely person to uh, to chat with, and I hope I get to see him and talk with him again soon. Um, anyway, back in 2009, and this was sent to us by one of our listeners. Back in 2009, um, he wrote an article 
And let's see here. I, uh, this is my bad. I forgot to pull up the article itself. Um, pardon me while I try to find this. Um, basically, what he's arguing. Well, do you want to you want to take over here? Okay. Well, there. Yeah. 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 Oh, I'm hearing a weird echo. Uh oh. Is that on my end? Are you still hearing it? Check. Yeah, a little bit. I wonder why that's there. I'll just have to. Oh no, it's gone now. Um, so we got this article from Jets, which someone shared, and I, I had never seen this article. So thank you for sharing it. Um, was it Derek? Uh, I, I no, it was J Justin. Justin. Oh, Justin. Uh, Justin, Justin. Wolpert. Yeah, thanks, Justin, for sharing this. I had not seen this article, so it's from 2009. Jets is Journal of Evangelical Theological Society. Right. Um, it is pro at this point. It says he was yeah a senior research fellow in rabbinics. Uh, and the New Testament at Tyndale House in Cambridge. So, um, but it's it's called infanticide, which is uh, killing of of inf of newborns, and which is a harsh topic. But that's what it is: uh, infanticide and the ap apostolic decree of Acts fifteen. So it, it, we, I'll we, just give a nutshell what he's talking about. Yeah, well, hang on just a sec. We should just oh. you know we should just say very quickly that uh, infanticide in the first century they considered this abortion. Because basically what would happen is the child would be born, and then if it was unwanted, they would then kill the child, either by smothering or strangulation. And then from there, they would leave it out in the wilderness for um, uh, to, to, to be taken. And they called the, this right. was essentially a, a, what they considered abortion. The problem is, is that it wasn't abortion. The child was, the I mean... Abortion's wrong anyway. Murder. Please, yeah. I mean, well, abortion's murder. But it was uh, uh, the idea is that the, uh, the baby had already been born. That's the difference, I guess, that we're pointing out here. That is the difference, but not that one is morally different than the other, right. in my exactly. opinion. Exactly. Um, however, the, the point is, is that obviously the child is born. You have a, a breathing, living human being. And uh, what Instone Brewer points out is that even though this was uh, was certainly looked down upon in the, in the Jewish uh, culture and community, it still happened in the Jewish culture and community. Um, people were still practicing infanticide uh, in in the first century among Jewish uh, people within Israel. Okay, go ahead. So what Instone Brewer wants to point out is, and so if you have a chance to read it, it's good, uh, but be sure to read Tim Haig's work on the Noahide laws also. That's important. Because... Mm. Uh, You'll see Instone Brewer rehearse some of the same points, recite some of the same texts with respect to how do we understand these four uh, uh, commandments or prohibitions that we right. things to avoid, things to uh, guard from that are given in the Apostolic Decree. And so uh, Instone Brewer does a good job of rehearsing the various solutions that have been placed on it. But what he zeroes in uh, on in this particular article is this word pniktas, uh, pniktas, which is this word usually translated from things strangled. And what he observes is, wow, you know, we can't, when we look, what does this word mean? So as a good lexicographer would do, I want to go and find other uses of the word. Well, sadly, we just don't have a, a lot of help. It's not used a whole bunch. And, and it's not used in the Septuagint. It doesn't seem to have much traction in, in Jewish Greek, at least in 
texts that survive. And what he goes to show is that even in Greek literature, you know, just in Greek uh, Gentile literature, um, it's not entirely clear what it means. And so he argues, and he, he basically comes down to, it can mean one of two things. It can mean meat of an animal that has been choked, which is supposed to be then somehow tender, because it, and it's sad, but apparently that is something maybe because of the blood in it or something. Um, or it actually means infanticide. And he, say, he says that it's, that it's the latter. His, he wants to argue that it means uh, this word, if we call it abortion, even though it's different than what we would maybe define that to be today. Uh, and so he wants to argue that that's what it is. Right. Um, and I, I completely disagree. I don't think that makes any sense. Not because that is an abomination and wicked sin in the eyes of the Lord. Because it certainly is. Because it certainly is. But rather, I don't think that, it, that there makes any sense that people who are believers in Yeshua, who have, who have the spirit of the Messiah in their hearts, whereby they cry, Abba, Father, where they would need to that that this sort of thing would be an area of ambiguity where they would need clarification. So let, let me play devil's advocate here for just a second, because what I understand Instone Brewer to be saying is that you have Gentiles who are coming from a Roman culture, <clears throat> and from I didn't read the uh, entire article. I I, did, I simply didn't have time, um, but I did read a, a good portion of it. And what I understand him saying is that in the Roman culture, it was more acceptable than in the Jewish culture. And this is essentially what you have in the Jerusalem Council anyway. Even if you're talking about idolatry, basically don't practice your idolatry in the synagogue because you're going to get kicked out or, you know, within the community. And what I hear Instone Brewer saying is you have a culture from Rome that that doesn't put uh, as, as in fact, he even brings up the, the uh, who was it, the emperor? or No, not the emperor. Uh, Anyway, uh, he brings up somebody who, who is uh, seen as like a moral hierarchy who practiced infanticide. Uh, and so if you're coming out of the Roman culture into a Jewish culture, this might be something that, uh, they, you know, and if the Jewish culture looks down on it so strongly, maybe this is what, once again, I'm just playing devil's advocate, um, but maybe this is where uh, where the Jerusalem Council... I'll show my cards now. I, I actually agree with you. I think that uh, this is more a, I think that the the four prohibitions, five if you want to take the Western text, which I once again have not deemed to be the, the correct text, but we'll say for now the four prohibitions, I think that they uh, are more akin to idolatry. And we can talk about that on a different show. But the point is, is that um, I think this is Instone Brewer's point. I think that's the point that he's trying to reach at. Well, at the end, he, he basically tries, He this is towards the end, he says there's two different possible ways to read the apostolic decree. One is a framework for how preparing food when eating with Jews. Right. And the other is how to avoid immorality of the Gentile world. So he takes it that if it has to do with food, then the idol offerings, the blood, and then the, the, uh, the strangling can, can fit with that. Um, whereas if it's the, if it's training, if it's not about how to have fellowship with Jews in the synagogue, if it's rather about instructing them to 
avoid certain things in the Gentile, uh, immoral world, it it has to do with blood. Then is like, don't kill, right? Avoid, uh, protect yourself from blood or uh, infanticide. And I think it's such a stretch. I it almost I, I'm glad he wrote the article. I guess I, I'm glad he wrote the article because it it's. But it's but what he did is he shows, in my view, it's a dead end. In other words, the value of this article is not that I agree with him. The value of the article is that he chased down a possibility, and in my view, he's he's it's a dead end. It's a, there's abs, there's no fruitful uh, uh, gain from his position. So, so even though he thinks there is, I mean, he thinks that he's staked a, a position that is contrary to the reading history because so, no one, no, I don't know of anybody who's ever suggested that that's what this word uh, strangled means. And so there's an inno- a sense of innovation and he got a published article out of it. But I think it's uh, it absolutely has no traction. So the problem that I have with the idea that this is infanticide is that, and you know, once again, maybe, maybe I'm missing something. You know, I, I tried to read his article quickly and I didn't spend a whole lot of time, um, you know, really... Diving into what he, you know, into I didn't I didn't follow his his uh, his bibliography or anything like that to other places. So, um, but with with that said, it seems to me that the idea that um, blood means uh, murder, this this to me is weak because even in within the Roman culture, you're not just the Romans aren't coming in as new believers into the synagogue. And, oh, I'm just you know. Yeah, I'm, I, you know, I beat my child to death last night, you know, and everybody's like, oh, right, that's, right, you know, right. that's fine. You know, it, it, it doesn't, it seems to me that there was still, even within the Roman culture, there was a moral code. You couldn't just go kill people, you know? Right. Um, and so it seems like th- these are almost unnecessary. It, it almost seems as though they would be unnecessary. Now, infanticide would be something that might be necessary. In other words, if you practice this and it's found out about you, then okay, uh, you're going to get kicked out of the out of the uh, the community. Fair enough. But if you look at the other things, well, if you kill somebody, well, not only are you going to be kicked out of the out of the um, believing Jewish community, you're going to be arrested by Rome, depending on who you killed. Right? I mean, you don't. Capital punishment was a thing. You don't just get off. Right. You can't just go around killing people. So it's almost like it almost seems like the weight of of the of what is prescribed by the Jerusalem Council is things that are actually happening on more of a regular basis than than uh, killing people. You know, the blood to be killing people. And even infanticide, while it happened, there's certainly evidence that it, it was happening. And um, I just don't know the numbers of how often it was happening. I don't think that there was just thousands of babies up in the hills uh, being, you know, killed in the left, left for the dogs to eat. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I, I honestly right. don't know the numbers, but uh, it doesn't seem to me like that was something that everybody, you know, every R- Roman house was, oh, yeah, it's, you know, we don't like this one. It looks weird. Let's let's take it out and kill it. You know, that doesn't seem to me like what was going on. Now, once again, I could be wrong. I don't I don't have the numbers. So um, but I, I I tend to think you're right that the uh, that the idea of this because it changes the whole narrative. Right. In 19. Um, uh, I'm sorry, in 12. Uh, I'm sorry, in 20, rather, in 1520, he says, but, uh, well, let's start in 19 and go go through 20. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols. 
So it seems like this is what's this is what's setting up the the rest of the text, right? Um, and what I hear in Stone Brewer's article doing is saying, okay, this is separate from the next things, and from sexual immorality, and from things that are strangled, and from blood. Whereas I, what I hear my father saying in his article on the Jerusalem Council, also in your show notes from uh, yesterday. Um, is that all of these things are connected to idolatry. Yeah, I, that's why I think that the value of this article is to just get you into the sources. Right. I would encourage people, though, don't just read in Stone Brewer's article. Also, take the time, if you're really uh, wanting to get to the, the nuts and bolts of the issue, to read Tim Haig's. Actually, there's two articles by Tim Haig. One is a larger ETS paper, which uh, I think it was given, boy, it might be older than this article. In other words... It was 2006. Are you talking about... It, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it's very possible. I don't know. Then Stone Brewer heard your dad's paper, right? I, and then and thought, you know what? Are you talking I'm, about the Noahite laws? Yeah. So it's do the seven, go to heaven. So I... I that was and the then there's one is... That was the very first ETS I was ever at, Washington, D.C., ETS. Was that in DC? And he cool. he was in a room that was that held maybe twenty five people, and there was about seventy five people that showed up. Wow. <laughs> uh, anyway, okay, this has been a great discussion. Anyway, it, but there's another article. Quickly. Is it, but I don't remember where it might be. Just on the divine invitation uh, article, where he gets into where he's contrasting the you know certain groups reading in, in the messianic jewish world of acts 15 right. and the noahide laws and he's contrasting that with actual historical uh demonstrable meaning because one of the things that we've seen in in the larger messianic jewish movement is there are institutional groups that take noahide laws as a given way to interpret acts 15 and they're right. not in uh there's not in slim company you know we know that we've seen major streamline Keener. evangelical Christians Keener's, uh, scholars. Keener's uh, yeah. commentary on Acts, and, which is now and, one and, of the largest. Uh, and it's just, it doesn't stick. You know, right. they, they keep trying to use different kinds of glue to hold that so sucker up, and my, it, it, it keeps falling down. My dad saw Keener. I think this is in San Antonio as well. My dad saw Keener and, uh, <laughs> and asked him how he interpreted Acts 15. And he said, well, I think it was a, a precursor to the Noahide Laws. And my dad just looked at him and said, oh, you did it. You, you did the same thing everybody else did. You should have read my article. <laughs> mm. Anyway, okay, this has been a great conversation. We're going to pick this up in two weeks. And uh, uh, as I think most of the people watching this know, I'm going on vacation. And so we have another two-week uh, stint before uh, we, we pick back up with the show. And when we pick back up, we're going to get back into this uh, topic again of Acts 15. We'll look a little bit more at some of the specifics of this passage. Um, and, uh, so we did two shows in a row specifically to try to, um, hold people over. We got new stuff in Messiah Matters More. And then of course you're everyone, all of our listeners, I'm sure are going to be very busy with the fall festivals. Ro uh, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah is, uh, coming up in uh, just a couple of days. And then we have the 10 days of awe, uh, leading up until into Yom Kippur. And we will be back the day after Yom Kippur. And uh, so that should be a good time. Anyway, uh, it's been a fun conversation, and I hope that uh, it has benefited you and uh, that it will help you dive deeper into the Word of God. 
Uh, may your hearts all be turned to our Messiah Yeshua during this wonderful festival season. And may we glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. Why? Well, because Messiah matters.